This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Sarah Hightower, who is an independent researcher focusing almost entirely on the Japanese death cult, Aum Shinrikyo. Not only are they a murderous cult, they're also a designated terror group because in 1995, they used sarin gas to attack the subway in Tokyo. They also manufactured their own assault rifle and were trying to buy nuclear weapons in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Recently, Aum Shinrikyo was back in the news because their leader was executed decades after being arrested for the crimes carried out by his members. This episode is sponsored by DefensePost.com and please excuse the sound on this episode. I've no idea what happened, but it is what it is. So Sarah, how was Aum Shinrikyo able to form in Japan in the first place? Aum Shinrikyo sprang out of the Yuri Geller phenomenon and the uh, the Nostradamus prophecies boom in the 70s. And then in the 70s, uh, the uh, the writings of Nostradamus were kind of loosely translated into Japanese. Mm-hmm. And Japan kind of liked it because the savior was supposed to come from the East. And you'll see that reflected in things like uh, Akira and Fist of the North Star. The world's going to end, but the savior's going to come from the East at the end of the century. So. Those are animes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, very big ones. Yeah, I love Akira, man. So... So all of this, so I guess you, what we're saying is there was like a time of kind of mysticism um, in Japanese culture in that time. Oh yeah, you had the uh, the new religious boom and the psychic boom, the Urigella phenomenon and the Nostradamus boom, and they all converged at the right place at the right time, so that when Shoko Asahara finally started his little yoga studio in Shibuya in the mid '80s. People would leave other new religious movements and come check out what he got going on over there. Shoko Asahara is—he's uh, the founder, essentially, right? Yeah, he was the uh, the blind guru in the purple pajamas, and I hate him more than anything in the world. <laughs> and how did he start all this? I mean, how does it go from a yoga studio to you know an international terror organization slash death cult? The Japanese uh, term is mind control. Sometimes that translates over here to brainwashing, but basically it was years of manipulation and abuse. These people saw him as a literal god. He was very cunning. He had keen psychological insight. He could read people, not in a supernatural way, but in like a psychological sort of way. Mm. He would tell them what they wanted to hear or what he needed them to hear to influence their thinking, their decision-making patterns. And then it slowly escalates into violence, internal violence, of course, and then uh, external violence, like you saw with the Matsumoto sarin attacks and the abductions, sarin attacks in the subway. What are the the beliefs of uh, Aum Shinrikyo? What did Shoka Asahara decide he wanted everybody to follow? That first it was uh, yoga and then basic uh, Buddhism. Then it was uh, Vajrayana esoteric Buddhism. And then it was the Book of Revelations, the white power elders of uh, Zion propaganda. It was a little bit of everything. And they, uh, so he just created basically his own beliefs, taking bits from all of these fringe groups. Yes, it's very syncretic, but that's not something that was specific just to Om Shinrikyo. A lot of new, new religious movements were doing that at the time, and a lot of them still do it today. Yeah, that is true. 
So what gave them the edge? Because they were really popular, right? In terms of, you know, all the weird little groups that were popping up at that time. I know that Om Shinrikyo was kind of the one to be at. It, it, it kind of was. In terms of numbers, they weren't doing that well, but in terms of just publicity because of the, uh, the candidacy campaigns, things like uh, going on tunnels, beat Takashi, things like that, and just the constant people out soliciting on the streets. Mm. Culturally, more people were aware of it. And in terms of numbers and money, things like Aganshu, Tenrikyo, and Happy Science were actually beating Om Shinrikyo. So these were other cults? Oh, yeah. Happy Science is still around. Wow, Happy Science, great. <laughs> so how did they... Have fun. How, yeah, how did, they, uh, how did they become extreme? Because, you know, I know at the start he wasn't particularly... He wasn't a nice guy and he was kind of brainwashing people, if you like. But they weren't always extreme. I mean, how did they go from, you know, weird little sect to violence he started the doomsday prophecies and it wasn't exactly silly at that time and there was a time i was trying to explain you know with the the writings of uh, nostradamus there were kids who would learn about the prophecies of nostradamus in school and they would have these tiny little freakouts because the world was going to end before they could really grow up and do what they needed or wanted to do and that was more common than you might think so that was a part of the cultural climate at the time. Well, I mean, it's not as if every person was absolutely convinced, but it wasn't as silly as you might think it was. Right. And Shoko Asahara, I mean, he, he said that he was God or what, what did he say? He was every God. Every God. He <laughs> okay. was Shiva Okami. He was Jesus from the Bible. He was George Washington. He was the man who built the pyramids. They believed in. Why? And you don't go and puncture Saren in the subway unless you believe God told you to do it. What um, What was the motivations? Why did they do the, the Saren gas attack? It's uh, because they knew that they were about to get raided. So Someone they, had finally been able to connect them to Saren production. And they okay. knew it was just a matter of time. How did they end up with the Saren production in the first place? Because it's not easy. It was, uh, it was easy for one of the members... And also they built, you know, those giant Satyan complexes. I'll talk about uh, Dainana Satyan. It's that big building with all of the Hastaloi metal tubes poking out of it and things like that. It looks like it's covered in a tarp, but it was massive. No one could just go up in there and walk around in there. It was built on private property. They were a religious organization. They actually invited a religious scholar in to look around when people started questioning what was going on. All that they did was just put this styrofoam Buddha statue in, in the opening, like in the little foyer or something, yeah. and said, no, it's a chapel. And they bought it. They bought into it. Guy goes and tells the media, no, these guys are legit. This is just a place of worship. But that was the place that they built with the stated goal of producing 70 tons of sarin. So they built this kind of religious institution for themselves that the police couldn't really mess around with because of the, the religious laws at the time. And yes. they built it to produce sarin. Mm, and VX and phosgene and botulism, things like that. Yeah, it was a full biological chemical weapons program. And how did they get chemists to come in and do this for them? They recruited them. And like I said, Asahara was pretty good at reading people. Also were the higher disciples. And a lot of the higher disciples were brilliant, brilliant scientists. They know what they're looking at when they see it and they know how to bring it in. It's, it's unusual, though, I think, that a cult would manage to bring in, you know, highly educated people like this. 
perhaps, you know, you could argue that it does happen like in America, but I think mostly that's like stupid celebrities or whatever. Um, you know, in Japan, it seems unusual to me that a cult like this would end up people with like PhDs and stuff. I think the smarter you are, the more questions you have. And there are some things that science simply cannot explain. And when you go and you look for those answers and you find someone that you can personally connect with and they slowly start to manipulate you and foster this coercive dependency, it doesn't matter how many PhDs you have. And what did they get out of it? I mean, what did, did uh, Asahara promise them, you know, if you join, if you join Orm and create siren and all this horrible, these horrible, you know, kind of chemical warfare for us, what did they get in return? They, they, they got the, uh, the reassurance that they weren't going to go to hell. Or that their brains weren't going to turn to water the moment that they died. So that was the uh, that was what he told them. The thing about the brain turning into water, I actually got from uh, Hayakawa's memoirs. You can read some of these memoirs. You know what they were thinking as they were growing up. You know what they were scared of. What kind of doubts and fears they had as they were getting older, before they ever met Asahara. So he just played on all that. Absolutely, it's oh. the danger of cult religion. Yeah, yeah. And what what do they think came after death? What was their version of heaven? It wasn't so much heaven. They were they were going to be reincarnated into a higher realm as Asahara was going to guide their souls through Bardol. And they weren't going to have to go to a lower realm, the hells, the beast realms, things like that. You have the astral world, the causal world. Sounds like a massive mix of everything, like astral, spiritualism, Buddhism, mm-hmm. all sorts mm-hmm. of madness. And then... Yeah. capped off with we need to destroy the world uh, before yes. it destroys us. Yes, and in between then, see, at first the world was just going to be destroyed, but almost going to survive if they got, you know, this number of members. And they were going to build their little lotus villages. And they were going to save what was left. Um, and how many members did they have at their peak? They had about 10,000 in Japan, and they had thirty to 50,000 in Russia. So how, that's what I want to know. How did they end up becoming popular in Russia as well? It was the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, under the Soviet state, you couldn't really freely worship. Well, once the, uh, once the wall fell, you just had this massive economic and spiritual void. Well, Om Shinrikyo had spiritualism, and Om Shinrikyo had a lot of money. So they flew over and, to Russia? Yeah, they flew where they sailed, yeah. Hayakawa set it up. And they set up, what, like uh, little schools and little branches of Om Shinrikyo there? Oh, yeah, they went through the, uh, the Japan-Russia universe, uh, University. And how did they get so much money? There is a rumor that Hayakawa and Mirai actually counterfeited a lot of paper, but also like to join Om Shinrikyo to become a samana, you had to sign over everything to Asahara, and they would liquidate it. So they just took everything from the members as well? Oh, yeah. And all of these initiations, things like that, they were incredibly expensive. And the PSI, thousands of dollars just to rent for a week or a month. They were selling his bathwater. They were selling his blood. They were selling his hair. Yeah, I read that. They were selling his bathwater. And people yeah. were, what were they going to do with it? Drink it? Yes, absolutely. So they would drink Shoka Asahara's bathwater thinking what? They would live longer? That it would basically purify them. And it could maybe cure diseases. That kind of stuff with uh, televangelists here in the United States. We have things like the blood of Jesus oil. And it's just vegetable oil with red food coloring. But they will sell it at a marked up price. 
I know, but it's a bit different to like, you know, we have, for example, you can buy holy water at the Catholic Church or you can buy, you know, a St. Christopher that's allegedly got a piece of got a holy cloth in the back of it. But that is very mm-hmm. different to go in. There's this guy over here. He's a living God and you yeah. can drink the water that he's just bathed in. I mean, you do know that they would sell uh, bits of uh, Jim Jones's clothes and, and pictures for you know, you to wear around your neck and stuff to keep the bad stuff away. True, true. It's common with cults and cultic sects. I don't know, he really seems to have abused their their weaknesses. He did, and you can actually see things like that in the uh, holy name system, or the stage system, and the holy name system. If you look at the executive members who got the death penalty, or the ones that participated in um, Shinrikyo's crimes. And they were some of the ones who had been there from the very beginning, the ones he had the strongest hold over. And when he started introducing things like the holy names, some of these members that he knew quite well, he would pick holy names with backstories that would either appeal to their their ego or appeal to the things about themselves that they wanted to change when they joined. Now, Joyu, his holy name was Maitreya. Well, he was like Asahara's chosen son. Well, Maitreya is like the Jesus Buddha, right? So... Through his compassion, he's going to save everybody's souls by being a nice dude. Then you look at Hayakawa. His holy name was Tiropa. Tiropa hung around with prostitutes and did what he wanted to do, introduced Poa, which is the act of killing, as salvation, as Ohm interpreted it. And Tiropa's whole thing was, you're thinking about it. Don't think about it too much. Asahara knew what he was doing. So he basically gave them alter egos. Oh, yeah. They would sit around. He'd come up with origin stories about how these people were reincarnated and they had lived together in past lives. And they had uh, what I want to know about is they had a base, right, uh, or a HQ, as far as I understand, at uh, Mount Fuji. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the Kamiku. Yeah, and I read that they yeah. did a lot of strange things there. For example, I read that some locals were observing coal members who'd basically been bathed in boiling hot water and their skin was all red and they were burnt. I mean, what was all that about? What were the these weird little initiations and these these kind of um, ceremonies they were doing? And they're talking about the hot water. I mean, that's a that's a standard esoteric practice. But under Asahara and in Om, it became very dangerous and very abusive. No, you had things like a Shaktipat, where he would open up your chakras and you'd have your first mystic experiences. And basically, he would rub your forehead until you thought you saw lights. And then you'd tell him about how great it was and they'd use it as propaganda. That's how they started drawing people in. They would fake levitation photo shoots to put in magazines and photo books to draw more people in who wanted to learn how to levitate. And then you had things like the Christ initiation, narco initiation. They made their own LSD and mescaline. And what, yeah. did everybody live with them at this base in, uh, in the mountain? No, 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 no. Uh, they had various branches with Samana set up all around the country. But only eleven to 1,400 people were live-in Samana. And the other thousands and thousands of people were lay members. Right. They would go to the branches, they'd attend the services, and they would spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on propaganda and initiations. So how did they uh, kind of mobilize people into being violent? Because that's, that's a part of what I find really interesting, that they went from being just a cult to basically being a terror organization. It started with the introduction of POA. 
See, after Shoko Asahara and the people who ran for, uh, I don't know, let's just say Congress seats or whatever, once they lost, Asahara says, the Mahayana course, it ain't working. We can't reach people. We can't save people by being cool dudes. The only path from here point forward is the path of Vajrayana. Vajrayana is not inherently dangerous. The, the Dalai Lama, he's an esoteric Vajrayana Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Under Asahara, Vajrayana became twisted and manipulated to mean violence. Because of somebody whose spirit is at a higher level, if you're at a higher stage and you take someone out, you're doing a good thing. Because otherwise their soul would be reborn into hell or the, the animal realm or something. But if a holy person strangles them, they are saving them. So they believed that by committing these murders, they weren't actually killing someone. They were saving them from hell. Absolutely. And maybe you can talk yeah. about some of their crime, because I know they did some terrible stuff. Like they killed a lawyer. They killed his whole family, even his, his infant son. Maybe you can talk about that. As far as we know, Ohm's first murder was internal. They, uh, they killed a member who had witnessed the accidental death of another member and wanted to leave. Asahara said that that was a message from Shiva, and it was time to start going towards Vajrayana, perhaps. And then the TBS problem happened. Uh, TBS is the Tokyo Broadcasting System. Mm-hmm. And they came out, okay, well, you had what was called the underwater kumbaka. And that was when you had to go into a giant dunk tank and hold your breath as long as possible, because it was part of your religious practice. Well, the Tokyo Broadcasting System, they came out and they filmed underwater kumbaka. And Ohm was already really weird, so they just acted like themselves. And then they started getting a little worried. Because one of the people who was there with the Tokyo Broadcasting System was a lawyer named Mr. Sakamoto. Mr. Sakamoto was uh, basically trying to get parents in contact with their children who had joined Ohm. And he was also trying to help these people who were being financially abused by Ohm. Once Asahara realized that, oh, wait, maybe this looks kind of stupid and uh, people aren't going to like this as much as I think that they should, they sent high-ranking executives to the Tokyo Broadcasting System because they wanted to see what had been recorded. The Tokyo Broadcasting System, they, they, they fucked up. They showed Ohm those tapes. Right. They went back to Asahara. They told him, yeah, no, this actually does make us look kind of kind of stupid, dude. And that's when Asahara decided that they had to kill Sakamoto. And how did they kill him? At first, they were just going to abduct the lawyer and uh, kill him with an injection. And it was going to be treated as a missing person's case. But they hadn't counted on it being a holiday. So Sakamoto never left to go to work. And then they, uh, they wait around. Sun's going to come up soon. And they're on the phone with Asahara the entire time, off and on. They realize the door is unlocked. Dasahara says, there's no other choice but to pull up. And that's when they realized they were going to have to kill the entire family. But they were already there. They uh, tried to inject at first, but they were all messed up. It was, it was all botched. It went very wrong. So it was uh, blunt force and uh, strangulation is what it ended up being at the end. And what date was this? What year did this happen? 1989. So it was a good, you know, couple years before they did the sarin attack. What happened after this? Were they suddenly, you know, because I know that people knew that it was Om Shinrikyo after it happened, right? After this, they were granted their official status as a religious corporation. Wait, after they killed the lawyer? Yes. So the authorities didn't know? They dropped one of their badges at the scene 
that hit the media. The Japanese media and the Japanese police are two of the biggest reasons Ohm was allowed to go off the rails for as long as it did, because the media wouldn't just come out and say that Ohm did it. And also some of the, the police stations and some of the people talking to the media, they were treating the murder of the Sakamoto family as if it was a runaway. Like, they just ran away. They're just gone. They just decided to leave. Right, okay. So then Orm goes up and up after this. Yes. What do they go to do then? Because I, I know they had, uh, they manufactured their own assault rifle. Maybe you can talk about that. I mean, how was that allowed? Uh, and how did they go about that? And why? Hayakawa and Mirai brought back the plans from Russia. And uh, Ohm staged basically was a corporate takeover of an ironworks production facility, production facility. And they had the schematics and they started trying to assemble it there. So they took over. They were so powerful that they managed to take these plans from Russia for the rifle, take over an iron factory and build their own rifles. You didn't necessarily have to be powerful to get into corrupt Russia at the end of the Soviet Union. Throw some cash around in a suit and get what you wanted, basically. This is true. That's so why it says in the Hayakawa note, how much is a bomb? That's why when you're reading through the Hayakawa note, you'll see these things written, you know, like how much for the price of a nuclear bomb? And this is things they were asking uh, in Russia after the collapse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. What was their ultimate plan, do you think? I think they did actually want to get a bomb. That that brings me to, there was, you know, there's, they went to Australia, right, to uh, Banjoan, and they ended up buying absolutely huge, huge piece of land. I think it was like the size of Britain or something like that. Uh, very large. Yeah, in the outback or, or, the, or the west or somewhere in Australia. Uh, what the hell was going on there? They were uh, making the sarin and testing the sarin. They were also looking for uranium. So they were digging? Yes, so, so, sorry, maybe you can just explain to me that whole thing. Like, how did they go to Australia? Why? The reason they went to Australia, it's similar to the reason that Jim Jones and the People Temple went out to Ukiah, California. Jim Jones and the People's Temple, he read that this was the best place to be in case of nuclear apocalypse. Asahara and Mirai and Joyu, they had read that at Banjawan Station in Australia, there were, uh, there were possible uranium deposits that could be mined. They wanted to make the bomb and cause the Armageddon. Jeez, how many people did they send? It depends on at what point in time. But yes, quite a few high-ranking executive members were there. And they bought all this land, and they what, set up mining, they set up a chemical weapons factory, essentially. But see, with Ohm, it could have just been a shack. So you look at Dainana Satyan, and it's huge, right? Mm. But actually... It didn't work as a large-scale sarin production facility. Masami Sutia made the, the sarin in a little shack, a little pop-up prefab hut right next to Dainana Satyan with his name on it. So it's very makeshift. Yes. Jesus. And um, there is, you know, it's a bit of a conspiracy theory, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, but I know there was, in the 90s, the early 90s, there was an absolutely huge explosion recorded around Banjawan station. Um, nobody really knows, you know, what happened. I know it, it actually, I think it was on the Richter scale, you know, it was so big. I, some people thought it was an earthquake. Some people I've read are saying, no, it was Orm, they tested something. Um, what do you right. think? I was looking at the dates and if I'm not mistaken, that explosion was actually right before they came and purchased Banjawan station. And even if it had been right after 
the right executives weren't there. Right. So it's just a coincidence something else happened. It, it has to be, because at that time, uh, Inoue and Hayakawa were out there sleeping under the stars with things plugged into the ground and their laptops trying to read like magnetic waves and see if there's just any uranium in general. Okay. And what's, what's this about the, this is around the time I read they were looking into research of, you know, Tesla, Nikola Tesla and his research and the death rate. Oh, they loved like Tesla. Is that all true? Is, is that just Oh, hype? yeah. Oh, no, no. I've got, like, straight-up stories. Go they on. sit around and talk about Tesla. Yeah, they so what was their involvement? They to try to get those papers. They went to the Tesla Museum because they wanted to get his death ray papers and his earthquake machine papers. But it turns out that the CIA actually took most of the good stuff. And what you can get even from uh, American sources is heavily censored. But these dudes did not know that. So they made at least two trips to different places trying to get their hands on Tesla's stuff. All in the pursuit of this doomsday thing, right? Yes, but also because they literally thought that the world was going to end no matter what. That was part of the prophecy, and they believed in these prophecies. So after the world ends, you have to have an energy source, right? Yeah, of course. You can't depend on the government because there's not going to be one anymore. So they wanted to create free energy, you know, as, as mm-hmm. put forward by Tesla. Yes. Wow. This is so science fiction. Mm, it's a very sci-fi cult. They yeah. tried to make Gundams and underwater submarines. They tried to resurrect Atlantis and the lost continent of Mu or whatever. They tried to resurrect Atlantis. Oh, yeah. They were going to resurrect Atlantis. What did they do? They didn't do anything. Ooh, ooh, except for they made this, uh, this, uh, this little rubber, uh, little speedboat. It's almost like a fan boat that you'll see down here in the American South. Right. I'll show you the picture. It's yellow and red, and it's adorable. And it's their special attack submarine. And Asahara is so fat, they couldn't even put it in the water. <laughs> right. So they didn't I love find these Atlantis. guys. Do you think Asahara actually believed in this stuff? Do you think he was deluded enough to believe in his own nonsense? Or do you think that he was just doing all of this for power? I don't know if he was a, an actual megalomaniac or not. It may have gone to his head, but he was just an abusive piece of shit who didn't want to be alone. Right. He didn't want to be faced with his own mediocrity. So he just created the most insane cult you could possibly think of around himself. Yes. They became, you know, they did become like a militant group. Yes. And did they have uh, anything specific? Like, I don't know, did they have like an armed wing that they would call it? Or did they have, you know, the, I don't know, their version of the military wing or whatever? They, They had multiple I mean, they had their ministry system that was uh, modeled after the Japanese government. But the Ministry of Science and Technology, that was basically like their War Department Research and Development Division. But this Ministry of Science and Technology, they, they were the ones who developed the chemical and biological weapons programs and the weird sci-fi making Gundam stuff. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Because in some of the footage that you sent me, you know, where they're getting raided, you got all these members with mechanical kind of skull caps that seem to be, I don't know, look like they're used for monitoring their brain or whatever. What's all that about? That was another initiation. That was the PSI. And I was trying to tell you um, earlier about just how abusive this was and the, the principles of mind control, brainwashing and the like. Oh, the PSI... It was supposed to put Asahara's brainwaves into your brain. You're supposed to become a perfect clone of the guru. 
That was the only thing that was going to save you at that point. Of the PSI was painful. It was very dangerous. It made you go blind. It gave you third-degree burns. It burned your scalp. What was People it? We're putting those things on their children. Oh, what, 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 what was the technology behind it? What were they putting on their heads? Um, it was just an electrode cap. It would uh, basically shock your brain in sync with Asahara's brainwaves. They had an entire little uh, brainwave research division. They had their own laboratory where they were just researching brainwaves. You asked earlier how a bunch of highly educated people with uh, PhDs and the like might join something like Om Shinrikyo, right? Yeah. That's because Om Shinrikyo had these these top-of-the-line facilities and a lot of money that they would throw at any stupid idea. If you could find a way to make it sound like it was centered around Asahara or would benefit the cause, if it was something that man liked to hear when you said it, then you'd get, you'd get as, as big of a budget as you wanted to research whatever you wanted. Oh, for somebody like a scientist, uh, that sounds pretty good. Ah, of course. So it's basically like, you know, if you're, you know, when you're a kid and you, you draw all these insane inventions or whatever, and you're like, oh, this would be cool. It's like that, but actually here's some money to do it and here's an insane ideology that makes it seem okay. Yes. And an insane ideology and a man presiding over this religious movement that will call you to sit in a circle and you would just talk about the most far-fetched science fiction weaponry that you would want to pursue creating shit so they were they were trying to build you know the best the most i guess what fantasy weapons yes i'm i told you that uh hayakawa went to russia right and mm -hmm. he was uh, instrumental in setting up that pipeline okay one of the things he wanted to do he didn't just want to buy a bomb he wanted to build a plasma ray cannon <laughs> of course and he, he wasn't even a scientist Right, and how did he go about trying to get the parts for that? That's what I want to figure out. That's what I'm really hoping that Yamaguchi sends me. Yeah. Because I need to know, I need to know if this man and this other little round man were just driving around in their pajamas asking random ex-KGB people if they would hook him up. Because I think that's how they got the acid. So they're just like, hey, Sergey, like, I need a plasma ray gun. Can you hook me up? Yeah, pretty much. So like, hey, man. I run an import business. <laughs> We're uh, going to import some of that good shit. Also, but, do you know where the plasma's at? But, like, it's funny. But they weren't chased out of town, right? I mean, I've seen photos no. where, you know, even Shoka Asahara himself, I forget who, but he stood next to, you know, a, a high-ranking KGB guy, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So what was their, I guess, collusion with uh, former KGB men and the Russian government at the time? It's nothing conspiratorial. It's just money. They had lots and lots of money and nothing better to do with it than get into Russia. Russia right. was like, hey, is that some money? I will not I will not laugh at your purple pajamas until you're out of the room. Got it. Got it. So it was basically they didn't believe this. They didn't even know they could give them these stupid parts of a fake weapon that's never going to be possible to even build. But it was like the Soviet Union's collapsed. Let's take the money wherever it comes. 150%. That is what it was. And there is what I wanted to talk about as well. A lot of people think, you know, you hear these very surface level kind of uh, episodes on podcasts or you read an article where it's like, oh, this is this cult that used to be around. And then, you know, after the, the sarin attacks, they were all arrested. Um, <laughs> but that's not true, right? It, it's, it's to this day, there is there are forms of Um Shinrikyo still going. 
Absolutely. That was one of the things I was most concerned about. Uh, you have Aleph, and Aleph is Om Shinrikyo. It's just Om Shinrikyo with a name change. And you have Hikari no Wa. Hikari no Wa is Joyu's thing. Uh, I don't think that they're uh, Asahara worshippers. Joyu being... Just a, sorry, just, just to clarify. Oh, Joyu being like a former high-ranking member. Oh, okay. So Joyu Fumihiro was like a pretty boy, and he was on spokesman. So he was he was perfect Maitreya, right? Mm. You still have Joyu gals. You see me hanging out with them online sometimes. Well, like fangirls. Oh, yeah. Joyu gal was a thing. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> okay. You had people joining. You had women joining OM after the Saren attacks because they thought Joyu was hot. Jeez and he was. Christ. I mean, he was cute. Yeah, but... That was the whole point. The whole murdering and cult thing is a bit of a off-putting... Oh, yeah. <laughs> ...story you would no, think, 150%, not. <laughs> yes. So, so there's Joy, Joyu's, uh, his version of, you know, an offshoot of Orm. Uh, and there's another one, right? Yeah, um, you had about 30 people who defected from Aleph. And they went down to Kanazawa and they set up their own little base facility where they live and do their things. That's a Yamada group. They're Yamada quite dangerous, Shida. right? I think Yamada, yeah. And Aleph, absolutely. Because uh, both of them, I believe, have direct ties to Asahara's family. And they're being monitored every day, I guess, by the Japanese authorities now. Oh, yeah, the PSIA. And it's been them. that way for years. So do you think they're still, they still believe, like they're still planning, they think, you know, this doomsday is going to come? I hope not. That's all I can say about that, really. But I do know that the, they're playing the old sermons, and I'm quite sure they have the entire Vajrayana course. They're doing the same ceremonies that they did under Asahara before he was arrested. Yes. Um, you know that trailer that you cut together for mm. the, the Om documentary? Mm. And uh, it plays one of the Shoko songs? Yeah, yeah. Shoko, 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 Shoko. Yeah, they'll, they'll sing those songs in the middle of the night. To celebrate the man's birthday. Some of them are wearing the electrode caps when they do it. Gee, to this day? To this day. It happened on uh, 319, actually, I think. And can you explain, I guess, we forgot to mention, what happened after the Saren attacks? How were Om Shinrikyo rounded up? Master aids that they had already been drilling for. They already knew to bring the canaries in the cages. They already knew that they would need the gas masks. Because of all the chemical weapons they'd been creating? Yes, it's the thing that actually got them the okay to go ahead with those raids before the, the subway attack. Is the fact that the soil right outside of uh, the Kamikuishiki compound at the base of Mount Fuji tested positive for the residue particles and things that are essential in uh, sarin production. And they were linked to the Matsumoto sarin attack. They knew it was just a matter of time. And they sent in basically Japanese SWAT teams, military, things of that nature. They raided, I think, 25 branches simultaneously on the 22nd. Uh, and where was Asahara uh, apprehended? He was hiding in the walls of uh, Satyan 6. One of the which buildings. Which is where they all basically lived. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hiding in the walls. What do you mean? Yes. No, literally hiding in the walls. He had like a, a Saddam Hussein spider hole in the walls of Jeez. Satyan 6. <laughs> and he was surrounded by cash and like snacks he was wearing a psi cap and so after that a load of the others got rounded up right um yes and we've seen what well, was not it? after 
sorry, it wasn't after. Pretty much everybody was already rounded up and were either being pushed through the courts or had been uh, released to go on their way. They didn't get to Asahara in the walls of Satyan 6 until May. So they had like two months. So the media would say, when is X day? Sex day is going to be the day that we went and got Asahara from wherever he was. Mm. People already knew he was hiding out at the one of the Satyan complexes. About a week ago or two weeks ago now, they were executed. Um, yes. It took a long time, you know, as you said, because of judicial process. Um, do you yes. think that's the end of Orm or do you think this is going to carry on further? It's not the end. They, uh, they executed Asahara and they executed uh, six other high-ranking executives. Basically, they took out the big names all at once. You still have six more. They're still on death row. But what about in terms of, you know, as an operational cult slash militant group? You know, what, what about that? Do you think that's over or do you think there's possibility? In terms of it being a religious doomsday cult, that's not going to go away. I don't think that's ever going to go away. Got too many true believers out there and they're very successful at recruiting people who don't remember the sarin attacks. And in terms of it being a, an actual militant organization, no, I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. The PSIA's been busting up in these facilities for years now, trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. The major concerns after the executions were lone wolf attacks and uh, mass suicides. And mass suicides haven't happened. No, lone wolf attacks haven't happened yet, but it's a possibility. Before, before we kind of end this, is there anything specific that you want to talk about that you think is really important in terms of Orm uh, and what people should know? I want people, I want people to know what these people live through. Because we're talking about these high-ranking executives and we're talking about these uh, terror campaigns and things like that, right? Okay, but I also told you that Orm Shinrikyo had 10,000 members in Japan. Of those 10,000 members in Japan... The number of people who knew about the murder stuff, or the terrorist stuff, and the biological chemical weapons campaigns. I was just looking at a handful, and most of them were executed. We had thousands and thousands of people who were abused. They weren't lunatics. They didn't get the help that they needed. And then a lot of them had to go into hiding. Some of them kept going back because they couldn't like officially relocate to, to new provinces and new cities and things like that. The anti-OM hysteria. It was it was brutal. Yeah, it's a very big thing in Japan. I mean, we might not hear a lot about it outside of Japan, and it's kind of like, well, this crazy cult. But it's a huge stigma to be associated with them, right? And uh, you know, kind of understandably so, considering they carried out such horrific acts. Yeah, well, most people don't even remember. That's the thing. That's I said. Aleph was very good at recruiting young people who don't remember the sarin attacks in the subway. When in Japan, there's this uh, cultural stigma. You don't really talk about these bad things. It's unscrupulous. And because of that, the memory of the incident has kind of faded away. That's really dangerous. Yeah, it is. Okay, cool. Where can people get hold of you if they want to, you know, follow your research on Orm? <laughs> I haven't made most of my research publicly available yet, but you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like. It's uh, at Nezumi Ningen. N-E-Z-U-M-I underscore thingy. N-I-N-G-E-N. It's a Satomo Miyazaki joke. I am not ashamed. All right, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's good, man. I think that's excellent. That was Sarah Hayatawa talking about the madness of Orm Shinrikyo and their constant pursuit of destruction of just about everything in their way. 
if you want bonus episodes which include everything from talking about being at an Azov Battalion summer camp for kids to listening to Jennifer Lopez on the way to a PKK battle in Southeast Turkey, go to patreon.com slash popular front. This episode was sponsored by defensepost.com as always. This episode was also made possible by the $30 Patreons, thank you very much. They are Stephen R.D. Henderson, Ryan Sandercock, Cole Gannon, Joel Tambusi, L.H., Aliame Leroy, Andrew Stover, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, and Teddy. Thanks very much to all the Patreons. You've basically turned this from like a little niche idea I had to something that's actually working. Popular Front is looking more and more like it will grow up from just being a podcast to being a platform for independent conflict journalism. As always, like I say, without the influence of corporate vampirism and weird commissioners who try and tell you that normal people don't like this stuff, having never really been around normal people. So I'm really happy with what we're doing here at Popular Front. And thanks very much again to the Patreons. That is patreon.com slash popular front if you want to support and get all the extras there. And if you want, ask anyone that is a Patreon. There are extras all the time, every week. To keep up to date with all Popular Front related information, follow me on Twitter, Jake underscore Hanrahan. My surname is spelt H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N if you didn't know. Also visit the Popular Front website, which is popularfront.co. All the episodes are on there and links to the various different things that are related to Popular Front. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home, the outro was by Son of Old. Visit his SoundCloud, it's soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. 